Hello and welcome to Making Media Now, the filmmaker's collaborative podcast. I'm your host, Michael Azevedo. My guests on this episode, Eamon Little, Joan Pratt, and Christopher Lydon, are part of the team behind a documentary in progress called Born That Way, for which Filmmakers Collaborative is the fiscal sponsor. Born That Way, directed by Eamon Little, documents the final year in the life of Patrick Lydon, in which Patrick looks back on his fascinating life, lays the ground for posthumous green shoots projects, and prepares for his death. Director Eamon Little promises that the film will be an unflinching journey to the end of an exemplary life, probing otherness in our society and asking searching questions about the future we want to create. Joining Eamon to talk about the life and work of Patrick Lydon are Joan Pratt, his friend from his days at Exeter Academy in New Hampshire, and Patrick's brother, Christopher Lydon, who covered politics for the New York Times from its Washington bureau in the 1970s, hosted the 10 o'clock news on WGBH-TV in Boston in the 1980s, and co-founded and hosted The Connection on WBUR in Boston in the 1990s. Christopher Lydon is currently the host of Open Source, the world's longest-running podcast, having been established in 2003. For more information about Born That Way and the Born That Way Project, please check out its page in the Projects section of the Filmmakers Collaborative website at www.filmmakerscollab.org. Making Media Now is sponsored by Filmmakers Collaborative, a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting media makers from across the creative spectrum. From providing fiscal sponsorship to presenting an array of informative and educational programs, Filmmakers Collaborative supports creatives at every step in their journey. To learn more about Filmmakers Collaborative, you can visit that very same website at www.filmmakerscollab.org. Now on to my conversation with Eamon Little, Joan Pratt, and Christopher Lydon. Well, hello to Christopher Lydon, Joan Pratt, and Eamon Little. Uh, they are joining us today to talk about a Filmmakers Collaborative project that is a film in progress. It's going to be a documentary called Born This Way. And it's a documentary that is going to be the story, the life story of Patrick Lydon who is the brother of Christopher Lydon, who is joining us today, and uh, a lifelong friend of Joan Pratt. And Eamon Little is a documentary filmmaker uh, from Dublin. And uh, he he's the guy who came to Filmmakers Collaborative with the idea for the film. And he's going to help um, provide some context to um, tell us how the idea for the film came to be and how it has evolved. So first off, welcome to you all. Thank you, Chris. As the person on the uh, on our call today, who is uh, who knew Patrick the 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 longest and knew Patrick uh, first, given that you were siblings, tell us about Patrick's role in the Leiden family relative to your siblings and your parents. No, he was an afterthought. <laughs> um, there were five Leiden kids and uh, who would have thought of another? And then my mother announced at dinner one night, we are going to have a baby because we were four boys already and one girl It had to be a girl. And he was known as Constance for, for no very good reason uh, until he was born. Of course, a boy. And it's, I, you know, people have remarked on it. He, he was a complete darling in the family. 
even before he was born, and then immensely afterward. He was adored before he was born and afterward. When he was a tiny tot in his playpen, we used to race off the school bus to see who could be the first to get a smile out of Patrick. He was he was adored, and this is very profound, I think it has everything to do with his life. He was just inundated in affection, uh, conversation from an early age. He used to say funny things. If you bump his high chair and say, sorry, he would say, sorry means don't do it again. (laughs) He was a presence. He was a sort of ageless character when he was, you know, a teenager. My college friends loved him. He's always been a kind of man out of time and place and a completely adorable person. But there are two stories here. There's the life of Patrick and there's this afterlife of Patrick. So many people have said to me, learning about his life, God, and I thought that was going to be my life, a life not for self, a life for other people, soaked in literature, soaked in fantasy, soaked in fun, and it gets bigger and bigger. He was a most extraordinary man. I'll say this, Eamon is calling the movie Born That Way, and you'll see why. To my mind, It's something like a portrait of the saint, a modern saint as a growing boy, or or, or a social activist, a social visionary. And it's very, very remarkable. He was not a sentimentalist. He wasn't even a great talker. He was a doer. He held the flag very, very high of living a purposeful, meaningful life. He was shaped, I feel strongly, by reading the Brothers Karamazov, Dostoevsky's Mm -hmm. masterpiece, when he was in high school, he took it seriously. He fell kind of in love with that, the third brother, the seminarian, the good idealistic Karamazov. And he aspired to live that life. And then he went and did it. And then he went and did it. You know, sometimes it's difficult to assess or to even observe members of our own family the way outsiders might, because siblings to us, well, they're just our siblings. They may not be anything uh, outstanding um, when you're so close. But those those attributes, those attributes of selflessness and intellectual curiosity and sort of walking the talk as a sibling, can you recall when you first started started to observe that, wow, there's there's a real special and unique individual among us here in the form of Patrick? For one, th- for one thing, he was adorable looking, but he was responsive. He listened. He took part in every family conversation, and there were thousands of them over the dinner table or anything else. Uh, but he was, what's to say? He listened carefully. He was charming. He, as I say, he was... He was sort of ageless. He would say things like another one of his high chair little speeches was, you want to learn how? Just keep doing it. (laughs) These high chair proclamations. (laughs) Yeah, you know, very much so. And there were these delivered with a certain papal infallibility. Um, But he was incredibly fun to be with. He was he was not a great athlete, but he was a passionate golfer, for example. Uh, we, We played baseball in our family. He was up for up for everything. But there was this sense of, partly because my father was very ill when, when Patrick had bad Parkinson's disease, mm-hmm. and was the five older kids, and then this surprise. But the surprise was so, I don't know, he was so beautiful. He was so well-adjusted. He was such a happy kid, basically. Uh, we, we noticed that early on. 
I was lucky enough back in January of this year, Chris, uh, to be listening to uh, your podcast called Open Source. And just note here that we are Christopher Lydon created the first podcast back in 2003. So to be speaking with a podcasting pioneer and a noted journalist and um, probably one of the creators of thoughtful, idea-driven talk radio, not the morass that it evolved into in, in some areas. But when I heard your conversation back in January of this year, uh, this was before I even knew that this film was coming to be. Um, and what came away from that conversation was it felt as if the ethos of the Leiden family was fully embodied in your brother. And I often wonder, families can also be very protective of one another. Was there ever a feeling that you're almost taking your principles to the point where you're going to put your happiness or livelihood in peril? Interesting question, Michael. Our family ethos was formed around the fact that my father was disabled by Parkinson's disease. And we knew that it was a disease that was untreatable, essentially, and would ultimately be fatal. So he had to stop working. He and my, my mother had an incredible courage and imagination to say, no, this is not the end. We're going to start fresh on a small homestead with five kids. I was milking a goat when I was eight years old and, and then went on to a cow. My sister looked after the sheep. Little kids looked after the chickens. But there was a kind of, this sounds weird and I'm just discovering it in my old age, but there's a sort of celebration of voluntary poverty. We had no choice. My father had a phone company pension. Mm. The miracle was that, first of all, my parents were madly in love with each other till my father died. And even afterward, my mother would poke me and say, Christopher, I hope you haven't forgotten. Your father was a great man. And yeah. she meant it. But yeah. there was a sense that life was a privilege. This was prosperous post-World War II time. There was opportunity. We knew there would be opportunity for us if we did well in school. And we worked our little butts off. But it was a happy little thing. And we were poor. Uh, uh, that was conditioning the whole thing. And along comes Patrick, this pure gift. Again, there was never, oh my God, another kid. It was sort of <laughs> another beautiful piece of putty to to take part in this whole thing. I, and that sounds that sounds overstated, but I can tell you, we, we we adored every morning. We get up first, Christopher, you got to go milk the cow. But there are lots of things to do, and including Little League Baseball and all sorts of learning. And um, that was the fundamental surround. Mm -hmm. Also, this simple point that my parents just plain loved each other. My father had high school education. Not, not No, my father had eighth grade education. My mother had graduate degrees from... Harvard and Chicago, genuinely intellectual. And yet that was never a gap. There's a moment in that podcast where I, Patrick and I recall that my father would sort of slam the table and say, you don't have to have a college education to, to live a good life and a happy mm -hmm. life. Right. And that was this sort of mismatch in our family. But it was there was so much enthusiasm around it. My mother was always shopping for scholarships to the best schools. Exeter was and still is maybe the best in America. The Roxbury Latin School in Boston was awfully damn good. Uh, we all went to great colleges and universities for nothing. 
But this was because my parents really cared about shopping the, the possibilities. It was clear to Patrick that, you know, you, you can do stuff. John F. Kennedy was running for president when he was a kid. And even that, from a big Irish Catholic family in Boston to be nominating and electing the president of the United States was, was an affirming, everything was possible. Everything was possible. And one of the possibilities that was opened up to Patrick by way of scholarship, as you had mentioned, Chris, was attending Exeter. And Joan Pratt, who is speaking to us today from Exeter, New Hampshire, uh, that's when Patrick came into your orbit. So when when Patrick Lydon arrives at Exeter in Exeter, New Hampshire, tell us what you were doing at the time and and what your what your initial um uh, meetings with with Patrick were like. My husband and I were beginning. We're just starting at Exeter too, in the same year that Patrick came. We were new teachers. We were. What new year was de- that? Nineteen sixty six. Mm-hmm. Fall of sixty six. So we'd been married three years. We had a two year old and a two week old when we came to school. So I was not focusing on students, but really on my family. We lived on a third floor of the dormitory. You had to go up three flights of steps and down four flights to the laundry to take the diapers downstairs. So it wasn't a whole lot of fun. Um, But we, um, it was also all boys. So you have to remember that in the 60s, Exeter went co-educational in the early 70s, -hmm. but it was a boy school, very much a boy school, boy, men teachers. Yes. It was not a place for women. So I did my thing. <laughs> and um, I can't say I was that I really loved the first two years. We got to go to England for a year after the second year because Charlie wanted to study Yates at Cambridge with a professor that was about to be 88. Or so. so we went off then but and came back and we came back to the beginnings of co-education. And that was wonderful. But anyway, Patrick was we don't really remember him. We, we didn't remember him in his first two years there. But we did meet up with him at his 25th reunion in 1993. That was okay. big. He, we were in touch with him. He came to stay with us. We had moved from Exeter to a farm four or five miles away. We were growing apples. And he and Gladys wanted to stay with us. And we really renewed our, built up our friendship then. And then went, we went over to stay with them in 1997. And what and was it, what what was at the core? What was the basis of that of that friendship that that really prospered and well, evolved starting we really, at that 25th reunion? We were really intrigued with what he was doing at Camp Hill. We were very interested in the Camp Hill community and we had read a lot about it and knew a lot about it. So share with our listeners what distinguished the uh, Camp Hill community. Okay, so a Camp Hill community that's a nationwide uh, organization of communities that are for people with children and adults with disabilities. And they're basically communities that are agriculturally oriented. They are on farms. They provide uh, sustenance and the food on the farm, provide jobs. The idea is that people who have all these disabilities can actually work along with mm-hmm. normal people. Mm-hmm. And so they hired co-workers from other countries. Nobody gets any payment. Nobody gets paid. No payment. But these co-workers came after college from mostly from Europe to Ireland or to other. I mean, there are Campbell communities all over the U.S. too. So they're all over. But um, we found that in in their in Patrick Gladys's case, they had met. Patrick went from Exeter to Yale 
And then he got very disillusioned with the state of affairs in 68-69 after Bobby Kennedy's death. And Mm -hmm. the Vietnam War, War was something he didn't want any part of. And racism was not appealing and the whole sort of white supremacy kind of thing was brewing. And it was he was disillusioned by the U.S. and he wanted to go away, I think, by a couple of different routes. He got himself to Ireland and found that Ireland was a place he really, he could see that there were farms and he would get involved somehow with farming. Christopher, during these chapters of of Patrick's life, how frequent was your contact with him? What kind of brotherly advice were you giving him? At this point, you're you're a well-established journalist for the New York Times. And I I noted that uh, Patrick was a contributor to the Times on a, a slight, somewhat different beat. Uh, writing about Woodstock and Rolling Stones concerts. What worldly advice were you giving your brother at the time? I didn't give him so much advice as as try to figure out what he was up to and how it could liberate me. Um, oh, interesting. I, I mean that sincerely. I, strange things to say, but I think my wonderful wife was always afraid that the Patrick in me would sort of burst out of my my suit and want to live a kind of adventure that he was doing. But, you know, it is remarkable. Who covered Woodstock? The Woodstock event. New York Times byline was Patrick J. Lydon. And it, it was an accident. And of course, nobody knew what Woodstock was going to be. But sure. my brother Michael had written a lot of rock music coverage for a lot of magazines and the Times. And uh, so there it was. But we we knew that Patrick was well in his way. I think we assumed that he would be in journalism somehow. But he had this other streak of wanting to break away and also recognizing we didn't realize what difficulty the country was in, uh, even as the Vietnam War was was going deeper. The racial crisis was going deeper. But Patrick intuited it. There was a real break in generations, 10 years between me and him. And it was, he, he, he was of the new, the new world. Mm-hmm. He got it. And we admired that. Nobody ever, nobody ever argued about those issues in our family. They were, we knew something was coming, but we knew, we knew something was coming, but we knew Patrick would be in it whole hog with complete intellectual integrity seriousness, constructive energy, all that. We didn't worry about him. Eamon, you in, in, in the synopsis of the of the film and what the film is going to be, uh, you refer to Patrick as a social artist. And I, I thought that was a really interesting turn of phrase. What does a social artist mean to you? Well, in my use of that expression, and Chris kind of touched on that earlier when he was trying to find a definition. I mean, Patrick was somebody who was very creative with human relations. He had a great gift for seeing potential in people and in situations and in connecting up things that seemed disparate to anybody else. Yeah, it's funny when I when I met Patrick first, it was a I didn't understand what it was that attracted me to him. But it was this thing that here was somebody doing a lot of good in the world. And yet he was not a do gooder. Mm. You know, he was doing this because this was his art. How do you distinguish uh, him doing a lot of good in the world, but not being a do-gooder? Did did he just not uh, live up to the stereotype of what a, a good doer is supposed to behave like? Well, he certainly wasn't pious or anything like that. Mm. He liked a bit of fun and he was just doing stuff. 
he he had, he was a man of great energy and great vision, and in a way, that's his great achievements are one of the the things that we're going to try and feature in the film, and not just because they're great achievements, but in terms of what they can teach us about the kind of future that we want to have. The title of the film, Born That Way, when you use that phrase, what are you referring to? Born what way? It's actually a straight from the horse's mouth, except not the horse the film is about. But Patrick tells an anecdote in the in the film where he uh, a, a woman with uh, special needs actually she asks, she sees this welder and the welder is working away, but he only has one hand that's functional. And she says, uh, what happened to your hand? And the guy says, well, I was born that way. And she goes, born that way, born that way. <laughs> and then Patrick is very passionate when he goes, yeah. You know, in that moment, he saw something about it. And I think, you know, we, we use the word disability all the time, but Patrick did not like that mm-hmm. word. Mm-hmm. What Patrick liked to do was to see the ability or the the, the potential yeah. in everything in people and it's that lens that we're trying to look at the world i mean what possibility of making a film with patrick was an opportunity to look at the world through a kind of unique lens that he had Amen. and 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 it is you know what do we mean disability he was a great champion of of people who with so-called disabilities and their citizenship and their rights and their potential over their disability. In fact, in one of the interviews I did with him, he said, there was a woman on to me recently and she said that her greatest disability is the fact that everyone says she has a disability. It's the labeling. Weirdly enough, for a different funding application today, I actually had to write a new synopsis of the film. It's funny when you have to do that every couple of months and you're rethinking the whole thing out. But it's important to say that this film will be a film that while it does touch on the past and does kind of look to the future, it's very much anchored in Patrick's final year right. on earth because I was actually talking to him about a different project. We were just, if Camp Hill was 50 years in Ireland, he'd been there at the very beginning. He had pioneered, uh, and established with Gladys, many other communities. And there was now 18 of them in the country. And then in the last couple of years, everything changed in the landscape of Camp Hill. I won't go into the ins and outs of it, but you could just simply say that the culture of hyper-regulation and risk aversion and the unfortunate fact that the Camp Hill communities had always been funded by the Department of Health, even though people with so-called disabilities aren't sick. They're just different. They just mm-hmm. have a different way of being. But because they're regulated and funded by the Department of Health, they have to be regulated by them. And therefore, the way of Camp Hill just couldn't be sustained anymore. And Patrick and Gladys ended up being let go from the very organization that they helped to establish. But um, this film is essentially, it, it'll take the course of one year in which Patrick has been diagnosed with uh, Lou Gehrig's disease or ALS, I think you call it. Talking to him about doing some piece of work around the fact that Camp Hill was 50 years in Ireland when he got the diagnosis. And he said, look, whatever you want to do, let's do it soon. And very quickly, I realized I got to make a film with Patrick. Yeah. And that that very unfortunate news was brought to your attention, Christopher, and I believe it was the summer of 2021, correct? Patrick and I talked all the time on the phone. He said to me one evening, he said, Chris, I've aged more in the last 10 weeks than in the last 10 years. And I thought, oh, my God, he, he works too hard. He needs a physical therapist or something. And But I think he knew already there was some 
profound neurological thing gone wrong. And, and then very quickly, he had a diagnosis, oddly enough, from a doctor in Dublin who had trained at Massachusetts General Hospital, mm-hmm. knows my neighborhood <laughs> as well as I do. Anyway, uh, it was diagnosed and there was no, no help in the way. I mean, there was, there was nothing to be done about it. Right, right. Treatment or exercise or drugs or, or whatever. One quick step to, uh, to just to redouble what something Eamon said. You know, he liked all sorts of people, but not the way you and I like all sorts of people. He did not see the difference, really, a fundamental difference between uh, Down syndrome people and the rest of us or autistic people, for that matter. He saw an intact soul that had maybe been, the packaging had been bumped or dented, mm. but he saw a whole person in Georgie McCutcheon, for example, who turned out to be a very, very interesting and productive artist. Or Isabel, I remember, he thought Isabel was the most beautiful person in the world. I mean, and he really kind of meant it. Um, sure. Yeah. Do you see any any correlation between the, the, the way your family um, uh, received and perceived and dealt with your father's Parkinson's and, and then the way that, that Patrick did not other people and just had this innate ability to see beauty that, that may escape others. That's a very sensitive question, Michael. It gives me goosebumps. I think it had everything to do with it. And I'd never really dwelt on it. My father was an incredibly strong person in our family, but he couldn't, he couldn't get out of a chair. He was incredibly affectionate. He was learned, self-taught, really very interesting man about literature in general. But there again, he, he could not walk. That certainly told us something about where the core of a, of a human being is. Yes. And did you notice a change or a deepening of the essence of Patrick in that final year? What was to the best of your ability in perceiving this how did he face and accept his mortality? That's why I say the afterlife in some ways is even bigger than the life. He was just realizing it himself. He was Mm. still discovering things. He read Brothers Karamazov again. Uh, It's a great big book and it's difficult, but he exulted in it. He also, and I have this uh, on tape. I mean, he read Moby Dick. And it, he was absolutely knocked for a loop by it. How in the world did that man do it? And he 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 just absorbed the book anew. But I think, you know, I think he was learning, and we were all learning. Wait a sec. This was this was an, an this was an exemplary life of discovery, of of generosity, of 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 learning, of pleasure, of. And he never, again, this is something he learned from my father, praise God. My father never, ever said, why was I, am I afflicted with this illness? Mm-hmm. Or me, or I, I deserve a break. He never, never once voiced anything like that. And neither did Patrick. He never said, oh, shit, I've got so much work yet to do. And he said to his Exeter classmates, very touching to me, he said, you know, here I am approaching 70. I thought I'd have 20 more good years and maybe 10 bonus. Uh, the question has always been how to live well. And now the question is how to die well. Right. But he put his mind and his spirit and his energy into dying well. And by God, he did. 
Eamon, you, you just mentioned how, uh, you know, initially you, you thought you were going to be working on one type of project uh, the to note the 50th anniversary of the Camp Hill movement. And then with this diagnosis that Patrick received, it turned into another type of film. Um, how were you able to seamlessly sort of shift gears uh, in terms of the type of content you wanted to capture? To be honest with you, the, the initial idea was still very much in its beginnings at that time. You know, I had said to Patrick, I don't even know if this is radio, which I also make, or mm-hmm. is it prose, which I also do, or is mm-hmm. it film? And I said, so a lot of those things I begin by just coming to see somebody with a microphone and see where it goes. And that was at that point he got the diagnosis and said, whatever you want to record, you better do it quick. So, but I just sat on the bench out here outside my office for five minutes. I think that's all it took when I realized I have to make a film now about Patrick Lydon because I had been working with him on and off since 2008 on various Mm. different projects. I had made a film about the Camp Hill movement in Ireland where that's when I first met him. My very first conversation with Patrick was recorded and my very last conversation with Patrick was recorded. And, um, I I had uh, he had then roped me into being the sort of documentarist of all the various projects that he was mixed up in down in Callan, which were quite many. He, he had a finger in every pie and he was into everything from environmentalism long before environmentalism was cool uh, to um Social farming, social gardening, mm-hmm. social inclusive arts. And he's, he, he is the energy behind this inclusive arts center where I made a feature documentary in 2011. And um, so anyway, I realized I got to do this. And I also realized with the disease the way it is, the first thing I got to do is just get him talking while he can. Right. And so without looking for any funding or anything, I went down there. I have enough skill and equipment to be able to just do interviews. Interviews amounted to about 20. Okay. You know, there's a lot of interview. So while I was doing them, I started gathering some fr- help around me to try and raise some funding. And with a bit of crowdfunding, we got in enough money for me to keep filming while he was alive. And then to also put in for funding from the usual sources and so on, which we got. But, um, but I couldn't get it immediately. I couldn't wait for deadlines before mm. I started filming or anything. And what is the state of availability of uh, other archival material uh, pertaining to either the Camp Hill movement uh, or Patrick, uh, other than your conversations with him during that, that, that final year, Eamon? Well, there's a number of, of dimensions to that. One of them is my own archive, which is pretty extensive. As my, my landlord here in Galway would put it, I'm the most man around with the archive of Camp Hill. <laughs> uh, but... Um, but then I also made contact with Jonathan Steddle, who was a kind of a hero of mine, who made these wonderful films in Camp Hill in Britain in the 1960s and in the 1990s. Right. And he gave me access to his his footage, not only the finished films, but the actual rushes. They sent them to me on hard drive and he since passed away. So I'm very grateful to him. There be, it's BBC stuff, so it has to be licensed well, at least we have it. And then um, I'm going to Scotland next week to search the archives of Camp Hill HQ in Scotland. Scotland is where the, is where uh, the Camp Hill movement began, mm-hmm. um, even though it was started by uh, refugees from Vienna mm-hmm. in 1940. Mm-hmm. So... Um, so there's that. And then there's a, an archive search to be made. And here's something that your listeners might be helpful with. 
Patrick told me, and I think I, I have him on film telling Chris as well, that in 1968, he was handpicked to be on a panel of bright young people to talk to on camera, to talk to Hubert Humphrey, who was a candidate for the presidency. Sure. And he, they were told, now, this guy is charismatic, so don't be afraid. Just don't let him woo you. Just put it to him. And when it came around to Patrick's turn to do it, he Hubert Humphrey was flummoxed. Yeah, he asked him about the race riots and about his U.S. his Vietnam policy, and Humphrey didn't have a response. And the handlers came in and said, "Cut, cut, cut! This isn't working. This isn't working." And he said it was never broadcast, except a kind of a strange cut of it was broadcast in Texas later that year in 1968. But I would give my right arm for that film footage. This young man yeah. is long <laughs> here, putting it to Hubert Humphrey. And so far, I haven't found it. I've arrived at the door in, virtually of the Hubert Humphrey archive in Minnesota, where I'm told there's something like 500 cans of film unlabeled. Now, I can't afford to go in there and, <laughs> and research them. So if anybody out there has any ideas about this footage, I will reward you greatly. All right, listeners, <laughs> listeners, you are on task. Let's find this footage. Can I just say something as well, that it, just due to the nature of the film and how it came about and the way Patrick spoke, the beginning of this film is going to be a kind of, a, it's going to be an act of memoir. And it's sure. Patrick speaking from a chair, always the same chair, always the same shirt, different interviews, he's getting a little bit more ill. And that part of the film is going to be mainly steeped in archive. He talks about Woodstock, he talks about Exeter, he talks about the Brothers Karamazov, he talks about, he's got this very, it's rich and various, and it's only later when he comes to meet Lattice and we meet her ourselves, and we, this is his wife, who, um, you know, she's she's the other half of this story. Mm. And she, like Patrick, had a, a, a childhood in which she was adored and which was very happy. My theory is that they were giving back in their adult life to the world what they got in spades as children, mm -hmm. this mm -hmm. exceptional love. But um, yeah, so it, it'll change and it'll finish as an act of observation. You know, it begins, it's like a portrait at the end, but it's a memoir at the beginning and it becomes much more observational as a film. And in the beginning, Patrick is talking and telling and it's storytelling in a way, an anecdote. Mm -hmm. And in the end, it's much more questions, mm -hmm. themes. Where are we going? He's quite a wise man, you know, but he also had a lot to say in terms of just anecdote. So we we kind of morph from one of these into the other. And in the course of that, we're going to see a lot of, we're going to learn a lot about community. Community was a huge theme with Patrick. And they set up communities. And in this final year, so many people who had been the sort of beneficiaries of Patrick's work came back in in the in Irish, we have a word called the, a mehel. A mehel is when the local farmers all help each other to make hay and so on. There was a kind of a mehel where they all came back and built for Patrick a house in which he could die in comfort. Mm -hmm. They built it onto the house that he was already living in, in two months, a timber house. And we were there for the whole of it. I was there for 89 days in 2021. I was there... Uh, filming. And another thing that Patrick said to me was, I had told him that my producer, Adrian McCarthy, had also made a television program about somebody with ALS, but that the guy hadn't really deteriorated much while they were filming. And when they finished filming, he died fairly soon mm -hmm. afterwards. He just mm -hmm. deteriorated and died. And Patrick said, you told me Adrian made a film about uh, this guy and so on. I said, yeah. And he said, well, I think we should go for the pure drop. 
Eardrop, yes. I, I saw that phrase used in your in your materials. What was he referring to the pure drop as? Which is essentially yeah. he was saying, you don't have to flinch. He said, okay, you won't be filming me on my deathbed probably, yeah. but you can you can come close. And the truth is that I actually was filming him in on the morning of the day before he died. Mm-hmm. I was just that we didn't know that he had taken a turn for the worse in the night. And I was right. to film him being woken up. He, I mean, when he when he got to a certain stage where he could no longer move and speak and so on, I began mm-hmm. to wonder what added value is there if I go to Callan now to film him? You know, and then I got a message from I heard that Patrick had said it was a pity that I hadn't filmed him holding his son's hand. So I mm-hmm. took that as a sign and I went down there. And but then he got so many visitors that day that they said, can you come back in the morning before the carers come uh, when he's being woken up and we'll do it then. So I was all set with the camera and the mics and everything. And they tried to wake him. And then it just became obvious that something had happened in the night and that he, he had taken a turn. And yeah, he, he died the following day. Mm-hmm. But it was a beautiful, beautiful, frosty morning that day. And I went down to the garden. He was a, be- he was a fantastic flower grower. And they had a, an 18th century, they still, Gladys still has it, an 18th century walled garden mm-hmm. full of exotic flowers and uh mm-hmm. There was this robin that when I was interviewing Patrick, this robin used to bounce into the house and it'd be on the floor there while we were doing the interviews. And then when I went down to the garden after that scene with him that morning, I was just filming the frost and that, and this little robin just jumped up on top of a post that was wrapped round with baling twine, which was kind of a symbol of Patrick. Patrick never went anywhere without baling twine. And Very his gun and holster. Mm. So as, as I had mentioned at the top of our conversation, this is a this is a film that is in progress. And the the hope of this conversation uh, is to make more people aware of it. Uh, but we also listeners to this podcast uh, have have heard us speak many times of the challenges that documentary filmmakers face in incrementally making their films. So I know, uh, Eamon, that you've got some travel uh, coming up. Uh, in the spring of 2023, as we're talking right now, um, for your purposes, um, what would you like listeners of this conversation today to come away with? I would like them to know that this is happening. I think that one of the things that this film will be important for, as well as telling a story, but for the anonymous viewer, um, I think that the 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 it, the film will. There's no question, but it will be also an oblique critique of kind of Western society in the light of the 2006 UN Convention on the Rights of a Person with a Disability. Mm-hmm. You know this. You know that we're we're forever not seeing the potential, but looking mm-hmm. at the disability, mm-hmm. and as a result of that. People are overlooked in a, in a culture which is becoming increasingly risk averse and increasingly hyper regulated mm. so that these relationships, these what Patrick would have uh, in his Camp Hill communities or in the Camp Hill communities in which he lived, relationship was the key to everything. But now those relationships are being systematized and at the expense of I think the happiness and the rights and the citizenship of people with disabilities. And that needs to be called up. I think it's all over the world. It's in the film business too. It's in every walk of life, this hyper-regulation, risk aversion. It's just, it's just nuts. You know, mm-hmm. one person has to document what the other person does. And, you know, it's, uh, I, I, I think anybody with, with the, 
with at heart the plight, let's say, of people who suffer from this kind of systematization should be or could be interested in this film. So sure. I'd like people to know that we're trying to make it. I know that at the moment I'm going on a fundraising trip, but I am tar- targeting very specific types. I'm going to visit some Camp Hill communities in Pennsylvania, New York, and New Hampshire. Mm-hmm. And then I'm also going to host some gatherings of people who knew Patrick. One of them is in Joan's house. One of them is in Christopher's house. And one of them is in the house of a very good friend of Patrick's in New York, Bob Rubin. But I'm also, why I'm going to the Camp Hill communities is is not to collect money, but to spread awareness of what I'm doing, to Mm -hmm. sort of try and cultivate a network of support so that later, when we still need to get more money, we pull the trigger on a fundraising campaign on Facebook and the like, and hopefully the word will have spread. So, and thank you for your efforts at the Filmmakers Collaborative too. I think that's very valuable. We have a teaser for Born That Way on that. And we have links to Chris's podcast. We have links, I think, to our Facebook site. But there's a lot of information to be got there and a lot of uh, links to be followed. And all of those links will also be included in the program notes for this particular podcast. And it will be promoted through all of the social media channels of Filmmakers Collaborative also. You know, and and... Having listened to Chris's conversation with Patrick and having looked at the the materials that you have thus far, um, you know, granted the themes that you just spoke of, Eamon, um, are going to come out and Patrick will be the beating heart of this film is what is what I'm feeling. And it is far more about a way a very gifted and special man lived than how he died. Absolutely. I used to say to Patrick, this film is not about the illness. The illness is the weather in which the film takes place. Amen. And That's a um, wonderful way to put it. An interesting thing, somebody was talking about uh, politics and so on. I, I was interviewing his his wife, Gladys, only this week, and she said that the way the day that they realized they fell in, had fallen in love, they were traveling together on a double decker bus. And Patrick was he was young and hyper enthusiastic about everything, and he was telling her that he had actually thought at one point that he might become the president of the United States. <laughs> you know, politics was very important in his family, and he thought he had some some kind of a mission in life. Mm-hmm. Anyhow, in Exeter in two thousand and one, fast forward. He gave a speech, having been honoured with the John Phillips Award for his life in the service of others. And he told the uh, listeners or the the audience that he never had a bank account. He never owned a car. He never owned a house. Now, in the in the end, at the very end, he did own a house, uh, but very frugal. It's a wooden shack, essentially. But uh, so this is a guy who wanted to be the president of the United States when he was younger and then later in life has never owned a car or had a bank account. So, you know, he gave everything, really. Well, I do hope that that all of you are invited to join me again when the film is complete and when it's ready to be introduced to the world. Uh, I thank you for your time and for your efforts. Uh, Eamon Little, Christopher Lydon and Joan Pratt. This is uh, this is this has been a great conversation and uh, I'm very enthusiastic about where you're going to take this film. Thank you again, all of you. Thanks to you, Michael.